0: Paul had said back in the fifth chapter, verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, instead be filled with the Spirit. And in the verses that follow, he uses a series of four participles to spell out characteristics of what the Spirit-filled life is to look like. And it's not about tongues and gifts, but far more about character and how we go about our daily living. So in verse 19 of chapter 5, he says, basically, a spirit-filled person is one who openly talks about their faith. They can't keep good news to themselves. And so he says, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Elsewhere, scripture says that it's out of an abundance of our hearts that our mouth speaks. Next, he says, a spirit-filled person is one whose heart is filled with joy. So sing and make music in your hearts to the Lord, Paul said. Thessalonians says we are to be joyful always. In verse 20 of chapter 5, he says, a spirit-filled person's life is reflected by a heart of gratitude. So we are to always give thanks to God the Father for everything. And literally, the verse reads, giving thanks at all times and for everything. Paul also said in everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And then finally the fourth of the participles is verse 21. He states that a spirit filled person doesn't live just for themselves or the thrill of the moment but for others. So he says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Just like Jesus has said the one who is greatest will be the servant of all. Now We can try to fake the first three, but it's that last one in our closest relationships that what we are really like comes out. We can quote scripture and try to sound spiritual to give an appearance of spirituality. When we're in church or with others, we see only occasionally or maybe once or twice a week, we can put on a mask and wear a smile to cover up the pain and uncertainty we may be feeling We might say grace before every meal and say that we are thankful when we're really not. But to really know if we're living in the Spirit, controlled by the things of God and not of this world, ask our families. Ask those we work with five days a week. Ask the people we're closest to. How do we treat them? Do we consider their welfare only our own? In chapter 5, Paul had said we are to live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. He told the Philippians, don't just look out for your own interests, but also to the interests of others. You can't really cover up the real you with those you live with day in and day out. They see what we're really like. They see us in action. And the reality of our words and grammatically, according to Scripture, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ is to be the guiding principle for our relationships. Now, in the ancient world, there were three primary relational areas. The first was the relationship between a husband and wife, which is what Paul had written about in Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 33. The second, we talked about was the relationship between parents and children, which applied to adult children as well, which he wrote about in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 6. Now, as we come to verses 5 through 9, he addresses the third primary relational area, and that was the relationship between slaves and their masters. And to be honest, this is one of those passages that can really be a little troubling, because Paul doesn't speak against the evils of slavery, which makes it one of those areas in the Bible that's often used as a point of criticism. But we have to read and understand Scripture not through 21st century eyes and values, but try to understand why it was written the way it was. So before I read it, let me give a little of the historical context which can help us in our understanding. When Rome went to war and conquered a people, those who lived were made slaves. And as still happens in some areas of the world today, parents who got into financial trouble might sell their children or even themselves into slavery to pay their debt. As a result, there were an estimated 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, up to a third of their entire population. Their society was dependent on it as a way of life, so much so that a vast majority of the work, the teaching, the medicine, the farming was all done by slaves. Most Romans considered work beneath their dignity. And while some were treated well and might even become almost like family, most didn't. Because there were so many of them, there was a constant fear especially among the Roman elite of slave uprisings, which frequently led to harsh treatment in an effort to keep them in line. In the law, they weren't even people, they were things, tools to be used and discarded. Varro, considered one of ancient Rome's greatest scholars, divided agricultural instruments into three types, the articulate, which were the slaves, the inarticulate, which were the cattle, and the mute, which were tools. He said, a slave was no better than a beast who happens to be able to talk. Roman statesman Cato gave the advice to a man taking over a farm that he must go over it and throw out everything that is past its work. Old slaves were to be thrown on a scrap heap to starve. The famous Roman lawyer named Gaius said, it was universally accepted that the master possesses the power of life and death over a slave. Emperor Augustus crucified a slave for no other reason than he had killed one of his pet quail. And another emperor emperor threw his slave into his pond as fish food because he had broken a cup. And as one Roman writer said, Whatever a master does to a slave undeservedly, in anger, willingly, unwillingly, in forgetfulness, after careful thought, knowingly, unknowingly, is judgment, justice, and law. The consequence of all that was that slaves lived and worked in fear. They didn't know what was going to happen to them. They had little job security. They did work that they didn't like for people. They didn't want to be around and for poor compensation. In response, they had little pride in what they did. They would often do as little as possible, and do it grudgingly. They might work hard, but it was primarily when their master was around in order to win their approval and make points, hopefully, to be moved to a better job. Now, given all of that, you might expect Paul to speak out forcefully against the practice. However, again, remember the context. When he wrote Ephesians, he was writing to a very small, persecuted minority, To justify the persecution, they were often accused of such things as cannibalism because we celebrate the Lord's Supper where Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood. They celebrated what was called the agape feast or the love feast, and so they were accused of public orgies. They refused to worship the emperor and the Roman gods, and they were accused of treason. And because the church was largely made up of the poor and the slaves... The automatic suspicion of church gathering was they might be fomenting an uprising. Paul was careful not to do or say anything that might bring down the wrath of the officials or their neighbors concerned about them plotting insurrection. Now, with that as background, and still within the overarching principle that he had given to submit one another out of reverence for Christ, Paul writes, Slaves, obey your masters in earth, or with respect and fear, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart, serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not men. Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your saves in the same way. Don't threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Now, while the comparison falls far short, the closest example we have today is the relationship between employers and employees. Our work, So that's what I want to look at for a few minutes this morning. It's the one place where people see us day in and day out outside of the family in a variety of circumstances. Ask our employers or our co-workers what kind of person we are to see if we're really being spirit-led. What kind of workers are we? Those trying to get by on a bare minimum or doing our best? Most of us can probably identify with the opening words from Stud Turkle's book titled, Working, People Talk About What They Do All Day and How They Feel About What They Do. The opening words read, This book is about work. Or this book, being about work, is by its very nature about violence. To the spirit as well as to the body, it's about ulcers as well as accidents, about shouting matches as well as fistfights about nervous breakdowns as well as kicking the dog around. It is, above all or beneath all, about daily humiliations. Don't we sometimes have the field, we have all kinds of reasons to grumble, to complain about bosses, to drag our feet, to do things half-heartedly, to find reasons and excuses, but Paul's words are to serve God where you're at. In essence, he's saying, take pride in what you do. Don't wait for the perfect job or one where you like your boss. The Christian work ethic is to serve God wherever you are. The principle is woven through these verses when Paul says, serve wholeheartedly as if serving the Lord, not people. Because when you get right down to it, it's all about our attitude. And the angels are laughing. Charles Lowry says, I travel around the country telling people that their attitude is either their best friend or their worst enemy. It isn't the position in life, it's the disposition. Now, I'm not one of those positive blab it and grab it guys. I do tell everyone that it is a fallen world, that Murphy was an optimist, and that there will always be people trying to blow out the light at the end of the tunnel. I even tell them that every day the world rolls over on someone who's sitting on top of it. I just never expected it to be me. In essence, he's saying there's no promise God's going to give you a wonderful, understanding supervisor. No promise he's going to give you fulfilling, enjoyable work with fantastic pay and benefit package. He does say serve God where you are with no conditions. And it's listed among the four evidences of a spirit-filled life. Our hope and source of contentment and meaning is never our career's or our place of employment, or changing job. It's God. He's to be the source of it. He's to give us meaning and purpose and direction. And for that, usually we need more of a changed heart and attitude. How many of us do feel enslaved by our jobs, tied to work we don't enjoy, get by by a bare minimum, trying to win approval by making points with our boss? Kent Hugh said, millions of people regard their work as something they must bear, a living indignity. A dark cloud of dissatisfaction blankets today's workforce. Only one-tenth of American workers say they are satisfied with their jobs. That's one in ten. For the overwhelming majority, work is dull and meaningless. This pervasive discontent has spawned the paradoxical problems of laziness on the one hand and overwork on the other. Patterson and Kim, in The Day America Told the Truth, tell us that only one in four employees gives his or her best effort on the job. And that about 20% of the average worker's time is wasted, thus producing, in effect, a four-day work week. While circumstances have changed from Paul's day, there's a principle within the passage which applies to us. Serve wholeheartedly, he says, as if you're serving the Lord, not people. Not people. The New Living Translation puts it, work with enthusiasm. We often can think of serving God in terms of church work or witnessing or maybe worship or devotions. But for Paul, it's also a matter of vocation. How we do them is how we serve the Lord as well. If the Spirit is present and active in your life, as God assures us he is, if you know Christ as your Lord, you learn to serve God where he's placed you because God is there too. It doesn't mean you don't try for a better job, but as long as you're where you're at, you serve wholeheartedly as serving the Lord. What's your attitude towards your work? A way to make a living or an opportunity to serve? If it's merely a job and a way to pay the bills, then you're spending an awful lot of time doing something that's really meaningless. God comes into our life to bring meaning. And one of the ways he does that is providing opportunities for service for yourself and for others. Maybe we're not happy with our work. Maybe it's because we don't see the opportunities to serve people. It's not just about making a living. It's about serving the Lord. It's like the 12th century monk Brother Lawrence wrote in his classic book Practicing the Presence of God. He said... He was able to maintain that sense of joy, being just as happy peeling potatoes and washing dishes in the kitchen as he was in worship, because he knew God was right there with him either place. Not falling into the trap of compartmentalizing our lives, thinking, well, this is the area of faith, and this is the area of work, and the two don't mix. Paul told the Colossians, whatever you do, work at it with all your hearts, as working for the Lord, not men. Faith impacts life. We think sometimes, unfortunately, in terms of jobs and careers, but there's a biblical concept for all of this, largely neglected and misunderstood today, and it's calling. Scripturally, calling isn't just for missionaries and pastors, but every believer. Our calling ultimately is to follow Christ, and how that plays out is through our vocations through the work that we do in serving people and the world around us. And yet the idea of calling has largely been displaced by an emphasis on career. A calling is something we receive. A career is something we pursue for ourselves. A vocation is an opportunity scripturally for service, and unless we see that, you won't find the purpose God has for your life. Peace comes from knowing we're at the center of God's will for our lives. And how can we have that peace if 40-plus hours a week we're miserable thinking about what we don't want to do? You know, the most, Lola will tell you, the most miserable year and a half of my life was right out of college. Unemployment in Hawaii at that time was about 7 or 8%. There were very few jobs to be found. We were just married, and I hated my job. I was miserable. The manager seemed to take special delight in intimidating all the employees. On more than one occasion, before work started, he gathered us all together for a meeting, and he'd stand in front of us, chiding and lecturing and daring us to try to find a job somewhere else. I was begging God to get me out of there. Like I said, Lola can tell you, it's miserable. That never changed until I finally began to hear God telling me that it wasn't the job needing change, it was my heart. I needed to change my attitude to learn with Paul the secret of being content in any and every situation that he talks about in the Philippians. And a large part of that was learning to serve the Lord where he placed me. And it wasn't until I reached that point that change happened. Part of seeing work as service, as Paul emphasizes here, is our attitude towards our bosses. Don't fall into the trap of blaming them or someone else because we're not satisfied. Satisfaction is internal, it comes from inside of us. It's not someone else gives or takes from us. Instead, Paul talks about respecting, obeying those in authority. No conditions. It doesn't say, if you like them, or if you get along, or if they're nice, or if they're fair. He simply says, serve wholeheartedly. And do it not just to make a good impression. Because through serving the Lord, we are always going to serve people. Once, there was a man whose life was one of misery. His days were cloudy, his lights were long. His name was Henry. Henry didn't want to be unhappy, but he was. And with the passing of years, his life had changed. His children were grown. The neighborhood was different. The city seemed harsher. He was unhappy. So he decided to ask his minister, what was wrong? Am I unhappy for some sin I've committed, he asked. The pastor thought for a moment and then wisely answered, yes, you have sinned. What is that sin? Ignorance, came the reply. The sin of ignorance. One of your neighbors is the Messiah in disguise, and you have not seen him. The old man left the office stunned. The Messiah is one of my neighbors? So he began to think about who it might be. Is it Tom that works at the grocer? No, he's too lazy. How about Mary down the street? No, she has way too much pride. How about Aaron, the paper boy? No, he's too indulgent. He was confounded. Every person he knew had all kinds of defects. But one was the Messiah, and so he started to look for him. He began to notice things in people he hadn't seen before. The grocer often carried bags to the cars of those customers that couldn't do it on their own. Maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe it's the officer at the corner who always seemed to have a smile for the children. Could it be? Or what about that young couple that moved in next door? How kind they are to everyone. With time, he saw things and people he'd never seen before. And with time, his outlook began to change. The bounce began to return to his step. His eyes took on a friendly sparkle. When others spoke, he actually listened now. After all, he might be listening to the Messiah. When anyone asked for help, he responded, After all, this might be the Messiah needing help. The change of his attitude was so significant that someone asked him why he was so happy all the time. I don't know, he answered. All I know is that things changed when I started looking for God. We all can have reasons to feel justified for grumbling and complaining and doing less than we need to. We can have supervisors we don't like, co-workers we can't get along with, work which seems pointless. Nevertheless, Paul says, serve wholeheartedly wherever you are. Maybe you need a change of heart before you can get a change of job. Maybe simply looking more eagerly for the Messiah, seeing him at work, and the opportunities he provides to serve where you're at. What's your attitude towards those who you work with? No conditions are set in Paul's words here, whether they're nice or not, whether you get along or not. He simply says, slaves, obey your masters, but masters also treat your slaves in the same way. What about your work itself? Do you get by with a bare minimum? Is that how you obey Christ? It says, serve wholeheartedly. Do you take pride in what you do? How about when you do your work? Do you work harder when your boss is around you in the hope that they all see and promote you, that you win their favor? The spirit-filled life that Paul talks about in the passages in Ephesians 5 and 6 are about putting Christ first, knowing that that needs to affect our relationship, letting Christ shine through us as seen most commonly through how we treat the people closest to us. Christianity begins in our homes, in our neighborhoods, among those we're close to, and it spreads. Be filled with the Spirit, Paul said, by serving God wherever you are. Are we serving God? Our Father, as we move on from a place of worship to a place of life, in our homes, our neighborhoods, our workplaces teach us the value of serving you first and just seeing that you provide the opportunities through that to serve those around us whoever they may be. We thank you God that you are present if we look and help us to have attitudes that look and seek and care We thank you, Lord, for your presence here this morning now as we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.